This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch, and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producers are Patrick Antonetti and Sean Cherry. Two guests this week, two excellent guests, really interesting conversations, very accomplished at what they do. First up is Stacy Dales, the NFL Network reporter. You see her all over that network, uh, whether it's covering pro days right now or uh, during game weeks, she is uh, assigned to a game. And she's had just a fascinating career because she... Uh, uh, she first came on the scene as a star basketball player at Oklahoma, then played professional basketball for a little bit, joined ESPN in her 20s, and did multiple things there, and then eventually became a NFL specialist. So she's had a really interesting career, and we talked about sort of navigate how she navigated jobs, um, covering the NFL uh, in 2021, and then we did get into a little bit about women's basketball and just uh, the absolute uh, continued nonsense that the NCAA uh, continues to provide us when it comes to uh, equity and uh, and supplies for uh, the men's tournament and the women's tournament and women's basketball and men's basketball. So Stacey Dales is up first. She is followed by the ESPN MLB reporter Marley Rivera, who's been on the show before. She, uh, we love Marley. Uh, one of the best at what she does. And she talks about the big stories that the media will be looking at in baseball in 2021, uh, what kind of access she has right now and how she uh, has to cover the sport as we still are in a uh, pandemic, but knock on wood, heading uh, to see the other side. And then uh, something I asked her, and I really appreciate her uh, her honesty here, just what she would say to, um, to young women and people of color uh, who want to cover baseball and what, uh, what they should expect and, uh, and what they might want to think about if they're interested in uh, following in her footsteps. So Stacy Dales to start, Marley Rivera as the closer, all coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, we now bring in Stacy Dales. She works for the NFL Network. I gave her a long bio. Jesus, Stacey, your bio is a really a little too long, generally speaking, for this podcast. You can also follow her on Twitter at S-T-A-C-E-Y-D-A-L-E-S. I'm pleased to be joined on the Sports Media Podcast by Stacey Dale. Stacey, how are you? Well, I'm well. Thank you for having me, Richard. A long bio typically only means that I've aged, so yes. thank you. I'm right there with you, <laughs> Stacey. But I appreciate, uh, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. And it's a really good time to talk to you. The NFL is obviously in uh, pro days, uh, literally, as me and you are taping this today, the NFL just had a, m- a couple of massive trades when it comes to the draft. So the NFL is front and center in terms of uh, the sports world today. A couple of first-round picks being dealt. Uh, you've been dealing with pro days. And also, we're in the middle of the women's basketball tournament. And for those who don't know, Stacey Dells was a two-time All-America at uh, the University of Oklahoma. Um, I mean, just a, a ridiculously 
unbelievably great player there. First player in their school's history to record 1,700 points, 600 rebounds, 700 assists. She played for the Washington Mystics after her college career was a number three pick overall. So I do have some questions for you, Stacey, too, on the women's tournament, even though I realize you're covering the NFL now. Um, first off, you, you've had an interesting career to me in that you went from professional basketball to ESPN, although when you were a professional basketball player, you were working at ESPN. And then you ultimately moved to the NFL Network. That's three very well-known and respected employers, and you've had long stints at each. Uh, and that all started when you were in your 20s. Was this the blueprint, or did it just end up happening as it did? I think, Richard, it ended up happening as it did, gratefully. Uh, it was a whirlwind, to be very frank. I mean, when you're 21, 22 years old, you really know zero about yourself. Um, respectfully. So you go through a college experience, and I redshirted my freshman year at Oklahoma all the way back in 97, tore my ACL. So five years at Oklahoma and Norman is a big jump for a kid from Canada, right, from a small town in Canada at that. So that transition, the evolution of a program that was you know, virtually non-existent, they'd almost literally abolished, not almost, literally abolished the women's program, thanks fully Title IX um, in, in many respects saved us. And, and then, you know, my college coach who just retired, Sherry Cole, took over, recruited me on a 5-22 and 22 record. So it was the unpopular decision to go from Brockville, Ontario, Canada to Norman, Oklahoma at a Big 12, you know, school that was at the bottom of the barrel in the Big 12. So that's how my, my career, I guess, in sports started in America. Um, but I'm so thrilled that it happened the way it did because that sort of launched me into the WNBA. And I was auditioned at ESPN to fulfill a women's basketball analyst studio role that morphed into almost eight years at just an incredible um, place. And so, you know, and all of that happened in my 20s, which is a lot for... A, a child and a, and a kid and a young lady. And so you're all of those things, I believe, in your 20s. And it was just a complete decade of growth for me. And uh, I wouldn't change anything other than, you know, just, I guess, um, being a little more easy on myself because I'd always put a lot of pressure on myself to excel. And the injuries piled up on the court. And I juggled the TV career amidst everything. So it was just a lot for me at the time. I could imagine in your 20s. Uh, so professionally, let me ask you about this. At ESPN, you did studio work, you did sideline work, and you did it in multiple sports, college football, uh, men's and women's college basketball, and the NBA. And so if I sort of take my... Uh, you know, if I take my memories back to you uh, when you were at ESPN, um, that's interesting to me because a lot of times, as you know, they will try to place a former athlete or a current athlete in the sport that he or she is playing. That's sort of how you get siloed. So while obviously you must have done some women's basketball at the time, you, you didn't end up becoming just a women's basketball analyst or a women's basketball sideline reporter. How did that happen at at ESPN? Because clearly that navigation at ESPN, I think, would have ultimately helped you become an interesting candidate for the NFL Network when that time came. Yeah, I, it's a great point, Richard. I 
I think just like in sports, I tell kids in, as far as just basketball who complain, you know, when, when their coach, when they're just young, or coach says, hey, go play the five or go play the four or go play the three, and they're a point guard. Because they're tall, their coach says, go, go play a bigger position. And they cringe and they say, I, I can't do that. I don't want to do that. Um, you parlay those things into life. And I, when I was blessed to be hired by Tina Thornton, who oversaw the women's basketball department, essentially, um, who I couldn't be more grateful for, for hiring me through that audition process, you, you, you come in contact with all of the greats that work in the building. So, you know, whether it was uh, Dave Miller or Ed Placey or, um, you know, wh- whoever called me into his office, Dan Steer, and said, what do you think, you know, if it's Ed Placey on the football side, what do you think about reporting? I, I was like this big-eyed, opportunistic, yeah, let's do it. And I followed and shadowed Holly Rowe, you know, and I was just a, yeah, it was a couple of years into my career at ESPN, and I think Holly Rowe is the best of the best and have the, you know, greatest level of respect for her and so many re- for so many reasons. I shadowed her, Richard, at a Connecticut football game. <laughs> And I, I followed Holly Rowe and I shadowed her and I watched everything she did. And, you know, again, couldn't be more appreciative of ESPN. And they kind of threw me into some different roles. So I was fortunate to touch a lot of different sports. I mean, dude, I even covered the great outdoor game. Like, I got to talk about, yeah, I got to talk about, I'm a dog person. I got to talk about dog jumps and, you know, uh, log rolling. Uh, Little League World Series uh, coverage, which was one of my favorite events ever. And so, yeah, it was just a sort of plethora of stepping stones that didn't necessarily say, okay, she's going to work in the NFL for 12, now 13 seasons. But that experience, I think, that I was so blessed to get taught me how to transition. Because, you know, you've you've been in this industry forever, and it's such an honor to talk with you, given what you've accomplished what you do, but you go from Stacy, please, please, Stacy. Sport to sport, and it's like you got to change your trajectory, right? Like so. So for me, that was pretty cool, and and uh, all those people that were a part of it, I, I'm forever grateful for. So this is like this is kind of interesting to me, um, and I, I just this is I wonder if because you were a um, an athlete, uh, and in Oklahoma, and people should know, like a very very well known athlete, just given how great your teams were by the uh, by the end of your tenure there you're 20 something at ESPN um, that's a very very high profile play and on television by the way that's a very high profile place to be at a very young age the one caveat here is it is a little bit before sort of the magnitude of the internet so you know you're not getting you know you're not trending on Twitter every single time you're on ESPN back in you know whatever it was 2005 2006 but still um, I don't know. I feel like that's, you know, you really have to have your head on straight, I feel like, so that you you don't believe, um, you know, you don't believe your own hype. You don't sort of get obsessed with um, too much airtime. Were you helped by the fact that you had been a professional athlete and that you sort of had to deal with the media on the other side? Or was it still, a, you know, a challenge? Because whatever, you're 26, 27 years old um, at the most famous brand when it comes to sports in, in the United States. Well, really, I thought as a communicator by nature, inherently, that it was a, a wonderful transition for me. So it, it, for me, it's all about the work. 
and it, everything everybody's made by in my opinion what they do behind the scenes so you know if you want to show up and write something special or say something special on TV there's something that goes into that and I think if you can trust in the work that you do and the foundation that you, you know, you pour the concrete, what kind of concrete are you pouring? Are you leveling it um, even in your 20s? And, and if you can keep it kind of level, you know, you can make it all work. And I think, you know, your, your confidence just shines if you have that drop back, right? So, you know, the challenge for me was everything just happened at such a fast pace. I mean, and I, I, I don't say that without, you know, I don't take it for granted. Um, I was married. I went through a divorce in my mid-20s, which was really hard, um, which is not a conversation that we will get into here. But um, there was a lot happening. That's the point. And it all happened purposefully and for a reason. And that, that's how life goes in my estimation. So as it all transpired, it was um, taking those relationships and learning and Especially, like you said, this was this was before the social media time, right? So again, you've aged me. Thanks. No, yeah, we're both there. So we're both we're both in the uh, we're both in the retirement home right now, Stacy. So we could have coffee. <laughs> um, but yeah, with, you know, with the, the pre-social media age, that you know, as a as, you think about that time, and for a young woman in the business, I mean, we we still as as women fight for so many things from a business standpoint in life, in every industry. And it's 2021. So, so you can imagine 15, 20 years ago, how different that was. Um, so you put yeah, that, I would Im- right? Yeah. I was just going to say for starters, what I would imagine one is you probably didn't make as much money as your uh, male colleagues back then, just sort of let alone a, a number of different things. And then, then like you just mentioned, sort of just navigating all that in your, um, in your twenties is not an easy thing to do. Um, and I think probably harder now because of the, like you just mentioned, the social media spotlight. Yeah. But I'll say this, as we talk about it, Richard, there's so much worse things. There's so many, there are so many worse things in the world that would decade, decade to decade you can go through. Uh, my, you know, wins and losses through life pale in comparison to some of the stuff that people live these days. So um, I look back with gratitude. Let me ask you um, about how the NFL Network job came about. Uh, again, even if I was writing about it, I just I, I wish my uh, my memories were um, uh, were a little stronger about sort of what the NFL Network was in in 2009 and how many people were leaving certain places to go from one place to another. But again, you're at ESPN, which, you know, in, um, in not, not just today, but certainly in 2008, uh, we're talking as good a job as you one could generally get in sports broadcasting. And you made the move to NFL Network to become uh, a host and a, and a national reporter. So how did that, um, how did that come about? Yeah, great question. I was with ESPN, and I think a culmination of a lot of things. Um, I kind of hit burnout at that young age, and what I did was move to California and just rather whimsically to take a year off at that young age. I don't know, but I was 28 or roughly 28 years old, somewhere around there. And um, the NFL Network, of course, 
uh, our studios, while they're moving, based in Culver City currently still, um, as we make the move to the new facility. But uh, back in 2009, they found out that I was in California, and um, I got a phone call. Would you be interested in, in coming in and being a part of this? And I, I said, I had already been now about 10 months without working. And it was a complete reflective process for me. Uh, my family was all in Eastern Canada, so that was challenging. But um, it was really a wonderful step in my journey because it landed me with NFL Networks, who found out I was there. I went in and met with them, and this is now my 13th season at the network. So it's been a re- really wonderful partnership and marriage. Starting in the NFL was Wow. For somebody who covered college sports predominantly in the NBA, uh, I was, you know, this basketball slash college football gal that the NFL is a, is a beast, right? It is a whole entity unto itself. And so, you know, learning the nature of the league and building those relationships became my mission. And uh, I started in the studio, but I was actually really grateful when they put me into the field, because when you're in the field, you meet people <laughs> and started the Thursday night package, Richard, as you know, and it, and uh, you know, for, for three years or so, I was a part of that every Thursday. So I was on the road four days a week for a few years. And, you know, in the process of that intertwined with every team, all 32, which was awesome. And to this day, it's, it's made a huge difference in, in my sort of growth. And, you know, I would, I would say uh, long longitude with, with the company and um, sustainability, I think too. So I'm glad you, you brought that up. The, um, the transition, because I think, again, that's something else that's pretty interesting about your professional career. Uh, your background at ESPN prior to the NFL Network was, like you said, uh, a lot of college sports for sure. Um, you played, obviously, basketball, so that would seem to be just part of who you are, you know, uh, part of your lexicon, daily lexicon. And then, obviously, professionally, you did a lot of college stuff. You're also, as you mentioned, Canadian. So while Canadians, obviously, particularly where you're from, they might be Buffalo Bills fans, and they follow the league, it is different. You know, you're not, you don't grow up in the States, so you're, the NFL is sort of not, uh, and I know this now living in Toronto, it's just not front and center every day in sports the way it is in, in the U.S. So when you first, Stacey, went about the, the job, you're obviously excited to be on the NFL network, but, you know, you're really coming from uh, a place that's very different than almost any hire, given where you're from as well as what you had been doing. So did you, when you said you sort of made it your purpose to do a crash course on the NFL, like like specifically, how did you go about doing that? Did you have like the NFL Network just give you reams and reams of research and you just on a daily basis just started learning everything about the league? Did you make cold calls to personnel people around the league? How'd you, how does one go about getting an education on the NFL on the fly? Yeah, great question. I, growing up in Canada, I was raised in hockey rinks. My brother, who's two and a half years older, was an amazing hockey player. Ended up ironically playing football. But the, I think the most excited person of it all was my dad because you mentioned the Buffalo Bills. He's like a diehard Bills fan. I, I'm his day Sundays are built around the Bills. I mean, he was. It was Jim Kelly, Andre Reid, Thurman Thomas in our household, um, like nobody's business. But uh, for me, it was just about 
really figuring out who to talk to when I started at NFL Network and just relishing the opportunities and being aggressive, I think, um, in a really nice way. I think if you, if you lead with kindness in life and humility, you build, you can earn and build trust. And I think those are traits too that are either inherent or not. And so the journey for me in the NFL, it is such a, it's such a league of camaraderie, trust, um, relationships, and I cherish those to this day. I never take them for granted. So when I started, it was, who can I talk to? Who's in the network that I can talk to? How can I pick Mike Mayock's brain? How can I pick Steve Mariucci's brain, Rich Eisen? And just asking a lot of questions, um, being, you know, open to coaching, I think, too, like, what can I do to, to, to tell this story better? So all of those things factored into it. And then again, the Thursday package was super helpful. Shoot. When you're out on the road and you get to stand on the sideline, there's nothing like an NFL sideline. I, I love it. I love football Sundays. I love when a coach that I know, it could be, it could be a strength and conditioning coach to an offensive coordinator to a running backs coach. I love those intimate conversations of life or, hey, what do you think about this? Okay, I'll keep that to my chest. That's cool. Um, you know, and building those sources. So I guess I, I kind of look back and I, that's how I feel about it. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, so let's move to today uh, and now in 2021. Anybody who's, let's say, following you on Twitter sees that, um, you know, you've been shooting out some video from uh, Pro Days. It looks like specifically here, uh, Purdue's Pro Days. How does it work for you now in terms of your assignments? Uh, you know, let's let's take the let's take the off season, non game season at the moment. Are you uh, like are you assigned to um, for lack of a better word, like sort of the lead up to the NFL draft right now, and might get any kind of. Uh, different assignments what like what what's your next couple of months look like and and how long in advance do you sort of know what it looks like for sure one of the misconceptions about the nfl is that it's uh you know a five six month season i mean this is a full-time 12 month season for us we we build from stage to stage from the regular season to the playoffs to the super bowl to the combine which we didn't have once again this year due to covid protocols to Free agency. I mean, free agency frenzy is critical for us. Um, That goes right into the draft and pro days accompanying that. And then, of course, OTAs, which we missed out on last year. We keep our fingers crossed that we get those back, which the organized team activities with, you know, with each team that we cover. Um, We're very geographical now with our reporters. So I cover the league, but you know, there's there's a sort of geographic landscape that I'm really linked to here in my home base of Chicago. And now we have home setups, meaning we have cameras in our homes that enable us to deliver at any given day. I mean, for instance, this will air at whatever time it airs, but tonight uh, I'm 
you know, a part of our total access platform for the entirety of the show. And that's, that's an off season thing. I mean, in season, it's a little different. It's more Sunday based. Uh, we're getting to facilities and reporting on the news of the day. So if I cover the Packers and Aaron Rodgers talks on Wednesday, Devonte Adams talks on Wednesday. And so, you know, whomever from the defense will be there for that. Um, now we've done it from our homes. So Total access tonight, pro days right now. Um, I'll get a call any given day. Hey, can you head to so-and-so's pro pro day next week? Sure, no problem. So it's just from week to week, Richard, we build the schedule, but we're always there in coverage because our season is really year-round. Stacey, on a purely um, uh, performance-based level, how challenging has it been for you to be at home and I'm sure the NFL Network probably set you up with, for lack of a better word, sort of a home studio. Um, and if you're doing um, some kind of uh, live shot with a studio host in, <clears throat> excuse me, either California um, at the NFL Network studios or let's say somewhere else because they're at a home studio as well. Like, how has that been? Because, you know, once upon a time, let's say you're um, – even if you're outside, you might have a camera person. You might have people around you. There's just people to play off of. If you're in a studio, obviously, you can play off uh, uh, an anchor or a fellow analyst. In I would imagine in this case, if you're home by yourself, it's a very, I don't know, it's like an odd feeling to me to to do that because you know you're on television. At the same time, it's so artificial. It doesn't feel like you're on television. So what's that been like during COVID for you um, trying to sort of navigate this kind of new landscape? Yeah, we uh, at NFL Network, we prepared for the long haul. It was like, okay, back in March of um, last year, when this all hit, uh, we were we were all kind of scrambling, but, and it's crazy to think it's been a, over a year in the pandemic, but we were all kind of scrambling. And I had, I was actually in Kansas City covering women's college hoops for Fox. And at the same time, our network was like, we all figured out, okay, this is going to be a while. So I shifted my office around. Um, I, I, some of the equipment I, I did myself, the setup, I, my lighting myself. They sent a few things to me. So it's kind of a makeshift, and I just kind of built it along the way. The biggest challenge is my dogs. Like, they're obsessed with the pandemic. They love it. I, I don't leave as much, which is really annoying because – they're in cahoots in terms of how they talk to each other and one starts barking and the other follows suit. So that's kind of annoying to control. Um, even though I couldn't have made it through without them, but (laughs) our network's done an amazing job, Richard, I would say as far as our production team, we, it's been on point. I'm usually wired in through Skype. Uh, some, some of the insiders have home cams, which is an entirely different, um, feed. But we've all made it work, and I think we've made it work at a high level. I was actually, when free agency started and just, you know, really started taking off, the Carson Wentz move happened, and I happened to cover the Colts quite a bit. Well, I was actually at a car dealership getting something done at a car dealership locally. And the Carson Wentz news happened that he was going to become a Colt. And I went home, and in 45 minutes, I was on TV. So... (laughs) That's kind of like a, a funny example, I guess, of, okay, okay, you can go on, and so how quick can we go on? And in many respects, it's it's great because 
we're, we don't miss anything as a team. And uh, I think the teamwork's been really exceptional. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like your dogs once went viral when they were maybe barking at like a cat on Monday Night Football. Does that ring a bell at all? That, that does ring a bell because it happens on a daily basis. My girl, my youngest girl, Blue, <laughs> she's 75 pounds and she's, a, she's an Oklahoma dog. I actually went to school, as you know, in Oklahoma, and she's 75 pounds, but she watches TV adamantly. I mean, she watches TV to the point where I have to sometimes remove her from the room because she she follows everything. And so, yeah, that that happened, ironically, on a, one, of, one of the great Monday night broadcasts, I believe, right around Halloween. And, uh, yeah, she followed a black cat across the, uh, the TV, and it was a real thing. It was a real thing, so... Well, now you know what it's like to raise a teenager. You can't get them away from the television. Um, all right, a couple more here. Um, when you are um, when you're reporting either in person or when you're reporting, let's say from um, from your home, have you found um, uh, either a positional group or a specific sort of coaching group that is more forthcoming with information? Um, than not meaning like if you were um, covering a game, like do you find offensive linemen or wide receivers or quarterbacks, let's say more forthcoming or like on the coaching staff, like our, I don't know, defensive back coach more forthcoming or like an assistant GM, uh, you know, you're living and marinating in this world. That's always interesting to me. Just if uh, when it comes to people who are uh, either more forthcoming or transparent, like does it ever break down by positional groups or, or not? I'd, I'd, I'd be curious. Yeah, no, it's an awesome question. Um, on Sundays, if I'm, if I'm right there on the field, I, I have, have my favorite players that will stop by and say hello and um, can roll with some of the stuff that he and I talk about. But like for interview purposes, like non-pandemic, I do a lot of phoners. And my, my typical request on the offensive side of the ball is an offensive lineman. I love my offensive lineman. I, I'm I'm such a fan of the linemen. They are so unheralded. I'm all about the underdog. So I will take Creighton and I will take Loyola anytime. And I'm not suggesting that they are Creighton or Loyola as linemen in the league, but they don't, they don't get all the respect that they are due, not just in the run game, but in pass protection. I mean, the center in football is so vividly responsible for so much and has to know every check at the line, just like the quarterback. So I have definitely some favorite linemen around the league on the offensive side, on the defensive side. I want the leader, Uh, whether that's, you know, uh, you know, somebody who comes off the edge and stirs the pot, like as a Darius Smith or an inside linebacker or a Mike linebacker um, like Danny Trevathan or, you know, somebody around the league that uh, Levante David with the box. I mean, somebody who, can, you know, really without compromising the game plan, which they never do. And I would actually, if they told me some of the stipulations of the game plan, I would opt not to report to protect them um, because I, I really value my trusted relationships. But just in general, who is the voice of the defense and, and you know, who is an offensive lineman who can kind of give me the skinny, if you will, on the scheme, how, you know, the leadership, um, so on and so forth. Um, always want to hear from the quarterbacks. They're all fascinating um, throughout this league. They all have different leadership styles and approaches. 
Uh, as far as coaches go, Richard, I would say I love the coordinator. I love listening to the coordinators. It's really neat because a lot of them are on the sort of precipitous of head coaching jobs. Some of them aren't, but they always give just a little different outlook on, you know, game to game, week to week than the head coach, um, even though they're aligned and on the same wavelength, there can be little nuances that they'll share. And I find some of the, you know, assistant coaches love to tell stories about some of their individual men. So that's always fun as well. All right. One more on uh, the F on that work and then we'll finish up on women's basketball. Um, you know, you've you've you know that the sort of the business you're always sort of having to prove yourself uh, almost on a weekly basis in this business, even if you have a long term contract. It's just it's a competitive business. There's always more people who want in uh, than jobs. Um, how, like how competitive do you feel um, like things are at the NFL Network or is it a competition within yourself um you know you you love this job you want to continue it for a while but you're also certainly well aware that you have a high profile job that a lot of people would 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 consider a destination job and would want so how do you i don't know how do you sort of navigate um that um while in some ways you've made it you also know that if you ever sort of approach it like that you know what i'm saying like it's uh it's sort of the wrong way to approach it so um I'd just be interested in almost in your sort of mindset on how you uh, approach your current job professionally, um, you know, even though some maybe from the outside would be like, wow, she's, you know, she's made it to the top of her profession and she has uh, she has a job, especially if you love the NFL, than anybody would want. Well, I think humility guides us in life. And I never take, I, never is a word I use very cautiously. I never take what I do or where I'm at in life for granted, because I feel like there's constant room for evolution. I don't know if that comes from my athletic background. I don't know if that comes from being once the underdog growing up in Canada, just a skinny girl out of Canada who, um, you know, kind of has always had a blue collar approach and mental print. If you will, I believe in putting your head down and going and working. And I'm driven by that. Um, I would say I'm all, I've always been an over-preparer. But again, when, when you have the moment that the prep, preparation meets the moment, I think the rest takes care of itself. So the journey is exactly the way it's supposed to be. And, you know, in approaching it with a very, you know, keen sense of humility and appreciation, which that for me, I'm, you know, I'm Canadian. It's like, I, it's kind of the way we are, but for me, it's the way that I've been. And I appreciate every moment, every season I go into it with a real fresh outlook on, okay, how can I tell this differently? Or right now at this stage in my career, it's pure joy. So when, when I'm at a pro day and I'm, you know, the age I'm 41 now, and I'm with a 22 year old college prospect who just launched a 42 and a half vertical or whatever it is. It's so fun to talk to him and understand what the league is and where he's going. So it's, it's passion. It's passion when I conduct an interview with a player after a Sunday win. And it's like this incredible climactic moment because every week in the NFL is so hard to win. And I leave after a 16-hour day completely on an adrenaline high and at the same time completely spent. 
because I pour my heart into it just like they do. And I think that that resonates with the people I cover, the coaches, players, teams. And I think that's really been the case my entire career, Richard. I love what I do. I, my, my passion for what I do is undying. And I think the combination of those things linked with, you know, approaching everything with humility is, is critical. Um, a lot of young kids will, in journalism, if I have the opportunity to mentor them or help them, um, I, I always kind of say lead with, lead with the kindness that you know yourself to be and um, be you and trust in that. Um, we all have a different style professionally. We all have a different sort of approach. But for me, my approach is keep my head down, work, and walk in with no expectations. I also think that gets lost a lot. You know, as you grow in whatever industry that you grow in and you develop some sort of a tenure, if you will, um, you could easily say, well, I deserve to do this or I, I have this expectation. No, like it's you go into it just humbly. When I walk onto a field or I, I contact a team that I'm covering that week, um, you know, my approach is if, if there is any chance I can you can pop me on the phone or I could you know meet with so and so, I would be so grateful. And that's the truth of me, and that's kind of how I've gone about it. And, you know, I, uh, I stand by it, I guess. It's an excellent answer. Um, last one is, uh, and we'll just end with this, because you, uh, as I said at the top, um, again, for people who, don't, uh, who are not familiar with Stacey as a basketball player, she's, again, a really, like, an a, a all-American great basketball player at, at Oklahoma. Uh, just hit the Google machine there and... Uh, if you type her in Oklahoma in, you'll sort of get a sense of, uh, of, of, of sort of how prominent she was, particularly in uh, Oklahoma at that time. Stacey, you so, and I know you commented on this on Twitter, and, and good for you as a, a prominent former player to do that. But, you know, you, you saw um, last week, as we're now taping this, the disparity in the weight rooms between the men's tournament and the women's tournament. I mean, to even call it a weight room for the women's tournament, it's like, incorrect on my part it just there was no um there was no weight facilities they it, it was kind of incredible just how stark it was to see um that the women were not getting any of the even close to the same kind of things that the men did and the difference here of course is that the 20 year old 21 year old women's college basketball player today like Sedona Price has um access to social media and can make a statement on it. And that can, um, you know, that statement, or in her case, that TikTok video can get viral and be seen by, um, you know, millions of people. And those people could ultimately be uh, in, in, Sedona Prince, I should say, not Price, I'm sorry. And those, um, you know, those people could be influential and ultimately it gets back to uh, the NCAA. And we have a massive story as we have now seen in the NCAA um, sort of, you know, puts its tail between its legs and tries to apologize and make up for the fact. Um, I just wonder from your perspective, because you played in this tournament at, an, at a high level 20 something years ago, like, I don't know. Does it just like tick you off that like 20 years later, it's like the same BS. And like, while things have changed, you know, in some ways they really haven't changed at all. And I wonder again, it's not often I get to, because uh, I'm not covering women's basketball like I used to. It's not often I get to talk to uh, former uh, really terrific players like yourself on just 
I don't know, what they see with all this today. And you would think that you paved the way for something that should have been better, but yet we're still dealing with the same bullshit in 2021. Yeah, I'm glad you brought this up. Um, and thank you for your kind comments on my career. Um, I, when Sedona Prince, because we didn't have social media, as you and I have talked about, when she posted those videos and then the pictures of the food situation, the dire food situation, as far as high-level athletic performance demands, right? I say that because there's people in this world that don't have food, okay? I'm very cognizant of that. I'm somebody who's played in an Olympics. I've been in an an Olympic village. Um, I've seen what the highest-level at their level of athletes require in order to play at the highest level, if that makes sense. Um, When I saw what she posted at my age, I was disappointed. I was appalled. At the same time, I wasn't shocked. She took a microcosm that became a macrocosm. The micro being symbolically the tripod dumbbell stand that you could see at a courtyard Marriott, right? Um, I was disgusted because I did play in this tournament. And at the time there was a certain naivete. You're kind of, when you're that age, you're just kind of happy to be there. Right. I mean, my program, we weren't supposed to go to a national championship game. We just, we were blue collar and we built over five years a program that could, because we were really good together and you never really noticed because stuff like this wasn't exposed. So when I, in 2021 saw what Sedona Prince bravely, courageously and confidently posted, I was proud of her. I was proud of the surrounding sports communities for speaking out, whether that was NBA players, whether that was representatives like the great Jay Billis, whether that was, you know, different Networks. I mean, I did something on the NFL Network about it. And my team at NFL Network was like, hell yeah, let's go, Dale. Um, yeah, I'm just disappointed that it took, as we've talked about, it took this getting exposed for the NCAA, which I'm very grateful. You know, a lot of people go back and forth. On, I played in the NCAA. I, I, I'm such a, I love March Madness. And, hey, add that term to the women's side, March Madness, because it's madness for us too. Okay, well, let's go ahead. Okay, Uh, there were some great articles just written about that as well. You want to put that sticker on your court, put it on our court as well. You can tell I'm getting a little feisty on this because I've been there. I've done what these athletes have done. The effort, the sweat, the tears, and as I said on NFL Network, we need weights too, we need weight rooms too, and we need nourishment as well in order to function at the highest level. And I thought about this, Richard. I don't know if people know this, but when you're in an NCAA tournament setting, Everything has to be equal. What I mean by saying that, and you know this, if, if the University of Oklahoma is playing Connecticut in the national championship game, your pregame time is exactly the same. The moment you can touch a basketball for your pregame warm-up is exactly the same. You drink the same water that the other team does. I don't know what brand that is now. Let's just hypothetically say Gatorade. You both have to have the same Gatorade, okay? The Olympics are the same. When you go to the Olympics, you are given the same luxuries as every other athlete. Okay. Yes. You may stay in different hotels, but there's a certain design about that. 
So if you're going to make it equitable amongst your actual category, so if it's the women's NCAA tournament, why shouldn't it be equitable if it's the NCAA men's tournament and the women's NCAA tournament? Shouldn't there be equity there? So if you break it down as an NCAA division to the simplest things as what you're drinking as far as your beverage and how long each team is allowed to touch the basketball, I would reckon to say you should look at the entire macrocosm of what's happened and ensure going forward. And I tweeted something to the regards of, hey, don't just make this better. Don't just be better. Fix it. And I'm glad they showed up. I, I still don't think it was comparable to what the men have. But I really do hope in the future that um, this, this wonderful platform, which is the NCAA, decides to make a fixable problem better for both sides. That's really well said. Uh, Stacey Dales is a uh, reporter for NFL Media Programming, also does obviously uh, studio work as well, and you can see her on, um, I mean, essentially all of that network's shows. You can also follow her on social media at Stacey Dales, S-T-A-C-E-Y, D-A-L-E-S. Uh, Stacey, I've been wanting to do this for a long time. I appreciate uh, you making some time for me. Thanks so much for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Absolute pleasure and honor. I was thrilled when you asked, and uh, I'm grateful to do it with you. Thanks, Richard. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League Podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua, and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter, and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film, and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. All right, as I said at the top, Pleased to be joined by Marley Rivera, who is a national baseball reporter for ESPN. Marley, before I, I mean, you know, just know I'll have given you a better intro at the start. But I, I, as you know, I know so many people at ESPN and have been reporting on your company for a long time. That is an incredibly short title for a staffer. Why is there no senior vice president in charge of programming and production? Why do you have such a short ESPN title? I think maybe it has something to do with your salary. So, <laughs> so the longer the title, maybe the more zeros in the paycheck. <laughs> um, I'm going to have to speak uh, to my friend Norby Williamson and see what we can do about that. <laughs> you need, uh, yeah, maybe some more, more, more titles and more zeros. All right, Marley, it's great. You've been on this show many times. We know each other forever. It's great. Uh, it's great for you to pop in. Um, we are taping this right before the start of opening day. You'll be covering the Yankees and. Blue Jays, very exciting time of year for you. Obviously, hopefully in a couple months down the road, uh, the pandemic will be lessened. You'll be able to uh, you know, at least cover the sport at least close to uh, how you normally covered it. And that will be part of this conversation um, because I do, do want to give my listeners a sense of what covering baseball is this year for a national reporter like yourself. But let's start here. Um, What's because you cover the sport on a national basis, even though you're based in New York, what, what's the most important story you think in 2021 for MLB? And is it simply, you know, surviving coronavirus and getting to the finish line? Well, I think, Richard, first of all, thank you for inviting me. Love being on with you all the time. And um, 
I think that, of course, it's going to be coronavirus and so on. But I want to stick to baseball, right? Because it's one of those things that we just, the COVID topic, and, and let's be very clear, we know we've all lost a lot of people, and this is a very sad thing. But I, w- I want to stick to baseball. And if we are going to be, you know, for me, the main topic this year is definitely, you know, at the end of the year is going to be the collective bargaining agreement, right? And this is the last year of, uh, of what's happening, you know, in baseball. There's going to be a lot of changes. And not only that, and I would like to remind your audience, that a couple of years ago, the owners had the upper hand. We did not see these contracts in the 300 millions that we have now, you know, now gratefully seen for people for like Mookie Betts, you know, and now the effort that apparently is on the table for Francisco Lindor, or what we saw with Fernando Tatis Jr., right? These numbers were not out there. It was kind of the low-balling era the last couple of years, and there was a lot of anger Major League players, that was the number one thing they were angry about. A lot of guys retired. A lot of guys that were veterans didn't have a job. And that entire time, and, you know, we know salary cuts happen and so on. That time there was a lot of anger. And then coronavirus happened. And then the 2020 season happened. And all that went aside because, of course, the only thing that was important was survival. And the only thing that was important was having a, you know, having some sort of season that you could present uh, to all baseball fans. But now, you know, if we take coronavirus to the side, this is going to be a very big deal, right? We're talking about the universal DH. We're talking about, you know, maybe shortening at some point, you know, the, the service, the obligatory service time that players have at this point is six years, you know, lowering it to five and dealing with a lot of financial repercussions, especially because baseball is making a lot of money. So I think that that's the number one story, but it's not sexy. It's not interesting, right? Like people are going to be like, well, is it the pools? Is it the new rules? Is it what's going to happen? And then I think that one, and of course, having the baseball fans back in the ballpark, Richard, because that was a nightmare last year of literally, and I have used this comparison before, of it feeling that you were working in a cemetery. I mean, it was just, it was dreadful to go to baseball games that were extremely quiet. And let me be very clear. I'm the first one who has complained at many times about fans, I have, about things that they've said, I was begging to hear some noise and some crowd because the spirit of baseball was not there. Marley, um, I mean, I think it's a challenge for reporters such as yourself to cover like the CBA and cover potential stoppages but and make that sort of accessible to fans when fans many times really want the stories on the field and they want to talk about baseball. But, you know, like you said, it's a very important story. On the field, baseball is in a really interesting position because they are really set with young, transcendent stars in people like Fernando Tatis Jr. and uh, Ronald Acuna and Juan Soto and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. And, yeah, Bo Bichette. And you, so the list goes, Lindor you mentioned, the list goes on and on and on. I feel like, though, we have been in like sort of here before, and baseball has uh, many times failed to capitalize on young stars. The difference is, and this is where I want to get into it with you because you, you've obviously interacted with a lot of these guys. I feel like this generation is interested in like using social media to push their brands. Tatis seems like a guy to me who's willing to market himself. He's not like Trout where he sort of wants to be in the shadows. I think he wants to be front and center. Um, so how can baseball use this, uh, particularly perhaps via media outlets, to push 
what looks to be, at least at the moment, an amazing crop of, you know, 20 to 26-year-old players. I think the number one thing is, and in a weird way, it was a blessing in disguise to use a cliche, you know, of the coronavirus season that we had last year. And the fact that our entire contact with every single player and executive was either over the phone in terms of a phone call or in a FaceTime or Zoom call. That's it. And what that did was make everyone very digitally savvy, right? Even me, like, you know, I'm a freaking dinosaur in baseball. You know, I actually know what these words mean now of being like, you know, on Snapchat and the like, like, I actually know what these things mean, the Twitch and so on, because I needed to. I was obligated to. And it's exactly what you said. These guys, you know, this is not the 90s. You know, you and I grew up watching that, you know, and of course, you know, how much fun it was, you know, Sosa McGuire, how they were, not, you know, dominating baseball at the time. But this young crop of talent and this incredibly young crop of talent, you know, the Ronald Acuna, the Luis Roberts, and so on, and, and the entire list that you mentioned, to just mention a few, are savvy. They really enjoy being on social media. And not only that, they have personalities that they're not afraid to show. And that is so fun to see, you know, to see them, you know, hashtagging and getting and getting all that. Like, who the hell would think that I would ever know what hashtagging meant, you know, at one point. So it's really cool to see these guys do it this way and, and engage with the fans in such a direct manner, because I wish that I had grown up, you know, as a fan of baseball, interacting with the players that I loved. And it was always just very far away. They were either playing on a field hundreds and hundreds of feet away from eight meters, if I'm talking to the Canadians, you know, hundreds and hundreds away or over the TV. So there was no direct interaction. And that is what social media affords you. And that is what's incredible What you know, LeBron James has reinvented the game, right, for interaction with fans and so on. And I really think that it's a prime opportunity for baseball to capitalize on that. But it's very, very important that you reach to the young audience. You know, baseball audiences are skewing older and older and older. The people who watch baseball look like you and me. And it needs to be, you know, it needs to appeal, you know, to that young generation. And I think they can do it through, through the incredible access that they have to the fans on social media. Marley, uh, can you give uh, my listeners just a sense of what it is like to cover baseball in 2021 from um, the Zoom meetings that you have to do to like, I, I, by the way, I don't know this. You'll inform me on this. Like, are you going to Yankee Stadium? And if so, like, where do you sit? Do you sit in the traditional press box? Do you go somewhere else? Just give people who are baseball fans who'll be listening to this just a sense of like what your day to day job is covering this. It's an entirely different game, right? And if if the if baseball was to be covered like this, I would have never become a baseball writer. So <laughs> something that I would have never done because you literally have zero personal access. Now I'm very lucky that I've been, you know, I'm an old dinosaur in this game, and I have a lot of phone calls and so I mean phone numbers and so on, so I can contact them directly. But every single day, what we do is remain in some area with a ballpark, right? It varies from ballpark to ballpark where we can watch these guys from far away, and most of the time, we need our binoculars. And for example, at Yankee Stadium, we are in the press box, but it is limited to only 30 media members because that's what is allowed. And I can tell you that, you know, as you know, Richard, the Yankee Stadium press box fits about 200. And then, you know, it's only limited to 30. We are socially distanced. We have to keep our mask on, you know, and at least this year we're going to have fans. Just imagine the 60-game season last year, you know, just the fact that there were no fans and you could barely, I mean, it was just, there's no interaction at all with any player except on Zoom calls, right? And then these Zoom calls are, first of all, they're a very limited amount of time. 
after, you know, second of all, the player that is brought to the Zoom call is decided by the team. So it isn't like you can, you know, oh, today I want to write and I'm going to just throw a random name out there because he just made the team at the Yankees about reliever Lucas Lucky. And people will be like, who the heck is this guy, right? Well, you don't know because if the Yankees don't put him on Zoom, I don't have a chance to talk to him because he hasn't been with the Yankees before. So there's this great limitation, right, on the stories that we can tell. And then that also has, you know, the dirty little secret of the the teams controlling the message. So no longer can I be on the field and run into, you know, Russ Atkins at the Rogers Center and, you know, pry a little bit and ask him about, you know, when he's bringing up Nate Pearson, you know, and ask a little bit. I have to wait for the Blue Jays to make Russ Atkins available unless Russ, you know, picks up the phone for me. So it is the control of the message. And that has been the most difficult part for anyone who covers the sport. You know, the fact that you have to be limited to what the team is presenting to you. And then one of the things that we do in reporting is observe. And it's very, very difficult to observe. When you're at this, the number one thing as a reporter is you need to know how to observe. And it is very, very difficult to observe if you're very far away. And you have to do it through binoculars and not interacting with the guys. So it really is just a very, very difficult time, you know, covering a sport that is already, quote unquote, kind of boring, right? It's a, it's a quiet sport. It's a sport that requires, you know, a long period of time. And that interaction pregame and postgame with the players has been completely eliminated. Do, um, you know, this is obviously a big discussion point among baseball writers, and I understand why. Um, in a post-pandemic universe, if that's even the right expression, do you, how much do you expect the um, the access to to have changed from where it was, say, a couple of years ago? Because there are a lot of baseball writers, and I think understandably so, who think the days of um, of talking to guys before games, batting practice, etc., uh, clubhouses being opened as long as they are prior to games, they think that's going away. I'm sure the writers will fight that morally, but um, there is a fear among baseball writers that you know the pandemic will sort of be the runway to changing the access that you guys used to have. I have to say that I used to be one of those writers. And then I had the opportunity to speak to a couple of PR people who set me you know, kind of straight. One of the things that I thought, and, and it's one of a, a very important thing that happens, is that we have gotten our access as baseball, you know, the, the Baseball Writers Association, which is what I belong to, that our, our access has been limited, you know, to 50 minutes before the game. And in the past, that's the minimum, right, that any team and a lot of teams, uh, you know, decide to give you the minimum because they would like to keep you out of there as much as possible. In the past, you could be in the clubhouse the entire time, right, like just kind of spending your time there. And what happens is that during that very limited amount of time of the 50 minutes, the players know that those are the 50 minutes when the media is in there, so they make sure that they are not in the clubhouse during that time. So it is a very difficult time, right, sometimes, particularly when you work covering a very big team like, you know, like the Yankees and a Yankee stadium where there's a lot of media. Every single day that I cover the Yankees in a pregame during that 50 minute amount of time, I can tell you that there were never more than four or five players ever ever in that clubhouse, and there were 30, 35 media members. So it really made things very, very difficult. But now what's happened is they, this disdain, and I will use that word, you know, and I am the one saying it, not the players, that they have, you know, towards us and towards the media seems to have gone away a little bit. And in a weird way, they miss it. 
They missed the interaction. And I have heard this repeatedly now from players, from media directors, you know, from PR directors of teams, that they are tired of the Zoom call, that they are tired of just this very blank interaction. Now, let's be very clear. There's plenty of players who do not enjoy talking to the media and where Zoom, they blossom, right? They're players that feel very comfortable because there's a control that the team has. But I can tell you that more than, you know, 75% of the people that I have spoken to miss that interaction. Because one of the things that happens is they get information from us too. And they love to gossip. There isn't a, you know, no one loves more gossip than baseball players. And that is what the media brings them. And they actually miss it. I didn't think that. I didn't think that was going to happen whatsoever. I actually was on the same boat as some of the writers that you mentioned, where I thought, well, we're never going to make it back in the clubhouse. And hearing that has given me a lot of hope. I don't think that we make it back in the clubhouse this year, but I do think that we are back next year. I think this year, maybe towards, you know, June or the second part of the season, we'll be back on the field. You know, once we have herd immunity and people are vaccinated and so on, you know, everybody's vaccinated. But I do think that eventually the club has access is going to come back and, and they missed it. So it's, it's really kind of interesting. I never thought that would happen. Oh, that's good news. I'm, I, I like that optimistic take from you. All right, a couple more here. Um, what, you know, you, the, 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 the good thing about baseball coverage, at least to me, particularly on the writing side, is we've seen a lot of changes, or I should say you've seen a lot of changes in your years on the beat. There's far more women writing, a, writing about the sport now than, um, than certainly when me and you first started. I mean, I have so many colleagues at The Athletic, uh, Lindsay Adler and Alex Coffey and, um, and, and uh, Pritchard-Oli. And just, there's just a lot of women who are writing baseball. I don't know if the press boxes were like that. Certainly weren't like that in the 80s or 70s. Uh, maybe they were changing in the 90s, but I'm not even so sure about that. So, you know, uh, there certainly, there's certainly needs to be, I think, more people of color. Um, who are writing and covering the sport um, and all different mediums. From your perspective, Marley, if there was someone who um, really had an interest in being part of the baseball media, and let's say they were in um, they were in college right now, uh, one obviously you should always sort of tell them to go after their dream. But realistically, like what kind of challenges would they? have, particularly if they were a person of color or a woman who who wanted to make this their life's work? It's still very challenging. And I think that the best thing that I could do for any, you know, any aspiring, you know, baseball writer or reporter is to tell them the truth. And, um, and I think that's very important. That doesn't mean that you don't try. That doesn't mean that you don't accomplish it and go for it. Those are two entirely different things. But it is very, very difficult and a really big challenge as a woman of color you know, to cover the sport. It's almost you try, you know, you have more strikes against you every time. I mean, it is, it is rare to find an African-American or black reporter covering baseball. They are, you know, you can count them with, you know, with one hand. That is how depressing that is. And I am the single only Latina baseball writer, national baseball writer, you know, in the United States. And that's embarrassing, right, that we don't have, and the only woman of color who does it. So it's just really, you know, the numbers are not there. And the biggest challenge is representation. You know, I was, you know, I didn't have anyone to look up to. 
You know, I, I, I would read about Claire Smith and I would read about Melissa Ludke, right? But when I finally met Claire Smith and she was my mentor at ESPN, you know, then I had the chance to know that, that a woman of color could actually also cover the Yankees, right? Which is, we're the only two women in the over 100 history, you know, year history of the Yankees, the only two women of color to cover the team. I mean, it's, it, it's insane. The numbers are crazy. So then one of the things that is very important is representation. And I think that's starting to happen. And it's great because there's so much out there, you know, with the you know the whole like citizen reporters and so on, that everything is so accessible. And there's Twitter and there's Instagram and there's everything else. And you have a chance to kind of interact with these players and write about them. And that's what I would do. I would I would absolutely be very savvy in every, you know, every technological advancement that we have in the coming you know years, because we know it's not going to be about Twitter and Instagram anymore. That ain't going to happen. So get savvy and start writing and start practicing. And the other thing that is very important is for you to become a whole person. It isn't only about knowing about baseball. It's actually about taking classes in anything. It's about becoming, you know, very comfortable with public speaking. And most importantly, really important, really important to study your freaking grammar, because that is the number one thing and the number one complaint, right, that you will get from editors is your grammar. And then for those people out there who see, you know, maybe someone like me, you know, the very few people of color that do this job, it is way harder, you know, to get in this business, to get the respect that you deserve, you know, and it takes you longer, but it is almost more rewarding in that sense. You know, that, that you actually got there when you had way more hurdles than anybody else did. And it makes you better. It actually makes you a better reporter and a better writer because you have to be the very best in order to get anywhere. You know, there, there isn't you can't be second best to anybody. And I think that's a really great motivation in that sense. But if you're out there, please, you know, follow, reach out to people, reach out to me, reach out to the people that you admire and I think that is very not that anyone admires me. Let me be very clear, but that reach out to those Stop. people that are exa- that are examples to you, and reach out to them and see how they did it. And everyone has a different path, Richard. And and I did not go to journalism school. And there's a you know I have that chip on my shoulder. You know, a, a lot of people who have gone to great journalism schools, and I always think, oh shoot, I wish I had done that because it would have cut some of the things that I had to learn on the go. But don't think that because you didn't go to journalism school that you can't write, whether you can't be a reporter or that you can't be a journalist. That is not true. So, you know, the only thing that it takes is a kind person with an inquisitive mind who can write. That's it. <laughs> the three things that you know, and and kindness is number one. Yeah, no. First of all, it's great, great advice. Thank you. I love the chip on your shoulder. You're like Michael Jordan. You just you just you decide like you create the perceived slide in your mind. George George Carl did not come up to me at a dinner. Well, I'm going to go out and destroy the Supersonics. So I love that, Marley. That's very uh, that's good. Although in your case, it seems like there probably were legit slides there. All right. So last one, um, last one for me is. Um, what you know? You congrats! You signed a contract extension for ESPN, so you'll be there for a couple more years. What um, what have you been told this year? Are your MLB assignments uh, at least in the first couple months when um, you know they'll make these plans? Given obviously travel could change, you guys maybe you'll be traveling more at the end of the year. But let's say as of now for April and May, where can we see your work? Well, that's precisely what you hit it right on the nose. So what we're doing right now is we have our schedule up to the month of June, right? Like early June, actually, not even late June. And then what ESPN is doing, which is what a lot of uh, businesses are doing, is they're limiting the travel. So I am allowed, 
I can request uh, traveling on an airplane, but it doesn't happen very often. So, for example, next week, I'll be able to go to Florida. But most of the time, I will be only limited to covering what I can drive to. I'm very, very lucky that I live in the Northeast. So that means, you know, that I have quite a few uh, ballparks that I can reach within four hours. You know, it's about, you know, five or six of them. And the Yankees, as the entire AL East is, is limited to playing in the National League East. So then, you know, obviously that limits also the amount of travel that we have to do. At ESPN, I'm going to be doing local games. So, for example, tomorrow I get Yankees Blue Jays. Next week, on Tuesday, I'm doing Phillies Mets at uh, City Sands Bank Park. And I'll be doing at least one game a week locally when ESPN has either the Monday night baseball or the Tuesday night baseball. And it happens to be in my area. So that happens a lot in the month of April and May. It dies down a little bit in June because there's a lot more Midwest. So obviously that travel will go to other colleagues of mine and it won't be me. But I'm very lucky that in the beginning, almost every week, uh, you'll be able to see me on Tuesday night baseball or Monday night baseball. That's great news. Uh, I'm glad I'm glad to hear that. And uh Jimmy Pitaro uh, and company made a very smart signing, or not signing, but very made a very smart move by uh, by extending you, and hopefully, uh, you know, hopefully we'll see we'll see more of you um, on baseball coverage. Marley Rivera is a Major League Baseball national reporter for ESPN. She just mentioned where you can see her. Uh, give her uh, if you are on. Uh, Twitter, give her a follow. Let me make sure that I have this right here, Marley. Oh, yeah, because I wasn't sure if the ESPN is part of the handle, but it is. All right, so it's Marley Rivera ESPN if you want to uh, go follow her. And uh, Marley, we made it through this entire segment. I did not ask you about A-Rod and J-Lo, so you owe me, and you're welcome. I mean, I'm still, I actually, I'm I'm going my second box of Kleenex. So we'll see how we'll see we'll see where it goes. We'll see where it goes. <laughs> I, I'm rooting for those two underdog kids. I think it'll work out. Uh, all right, Marley Rivera, everyone, one of the best. Please follow her and read her stuff. Thank you, Marley. Thank you for having me, Richard. As always, I'm just so thankful. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to Stacy Dales and Marley Rivera for their insights and their time. If uh, you like these conversations, head to the Sports Media with Richard Deitch page and uh, leave us a five star. Uh, review as well as some nice words that stuff absolutely matters to uh to my bosses at this podcast we've had some uh, good guests uh previous podcast before this one james andrew miller and anthony Krupe on the nfl's new media deals and then before that we had sean shapiro and ryan s clark on espn and its new deal with the nhl so check out all the podcast uh fun i think there'll be stuff certainly in the media that you'll find interesting and then some uh, bigger name guests uh, about their careers as well. want to thank Patrick Antonetti and Sean Cherry, of course, for producing this podcast. Thanks to everybody uh, in the Cadence 13 family, from Chris Corcoran to John McDermott. And, of course, thank you, the audience, for listening. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.